Let's pray. Oh God, here we are. We've been singing, worshiping, lifting up our voices to you. You have something in the word? Speak to us. We can hear you. Engage our minds, address our hearts. May we not be the same for this story. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Like an orphan, like a Jew, like a woman. Unbelievable. This story. And yet embedded in her story, recorded in Scripture, not a single, get this, not a single mention of God anywhere. And given this is a book of moral ambiguities, I mean, stuff that, boy, when they told us her story in children's Sabbath school, nobody breathed a word about it to us. Oh. But then she was in exile, and so are we. Begin a new series right now, In Exile, Cadences of Home, episode number one, Bachelorette for a Day. You know who I'm talking about. Open your Bible to the little book of Esther. Let's go. Esther. Before the, just before the book of Job. Find the book of Esther, please. Just 10 chapters. Not a breath about God in the book. How did it get in the Bible? Let's find out. Esther, chapter 2. Pick up the story. I'll be in the New International Version. Esther, chapter 2. We'll pick it up here in, in verse... Ooh, let's pick it up in verse 5. Now, there was... So this plot is going to thicken as we go. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa, capital of the Persian Empire, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. Now, look, at I grew up as a kid, and we called him Mordecai. Did you, did you do the same Mordecai? Yeah. Uh, but we have a Mordecai here at the university. He's one of our beloved workers at the university. He's an active volunteer in the Pioneer Memorial Church. So in honor of him, it's going to be Mordecai today. There was this Jew named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, who had been carried into exile. Ooh, the word exile. There's that word, in exile. Here's, here's a dic- dictionary definition. What's exile? The state of being barred from one's native country, typically for political or punitive reasons. That makes Mordecai a fourth-generation exile. He never knew home. He's only heard stories, cadences of home. Never been there and done that. So there's Mordecai. Now, let's drop down to... Uh, Let's drop down to verse, verse 7. And Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah. And that's a beautiful Hebrew name. It means myrtle. So he has this little cousin named Hadassah, whom he brought up because she had neither father nor mother, the poor child. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, so that's a Persian name, and it means star. So she's bilingual, obviously, certainly bicultural. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. Now, look, when I was a kid growing up, we only had black and white TV. Anybody here remember the days when it was only black and white television? There was a program. See if you remember this program. Black and white. Four years on NBC, four years on ABC. Title of the program, Queen for a Day. Anybody remember Queen Queen for a Day? Don't even admit it, but I'm raising my hand with you. Queen for a Day. Incredible. That was one of the first large prize giveaway programs that America has gone absolutely bonkers over. The price is right. America's got talent. A lot of money given away. Well, this was a program devoted... Not quite exclusively, but uh, the audiences were dominantly... According to Wikipedia, the the, uh, audiences were dominantly women. They would invite women to come, women who, who, could, who, who, who would be willing to share 
a particular need they had. It might be, uh, it might be medical equipment. It might be therapeutic care for a chronically ill child. It could be they have a house and there's, there's, no, there's no washing machine in it. Or we've never had a refrigerator. Oh, I'd love to have a refrigerator. Anyway, they would line the women up, forget how many, and uh, they would interview each one of them. And the women would start sobbing at some point because they, they would say, what, what is it you really want? So it caught the heart, it captured the heart of America. And when it was all over, here's how they chose the queen. I don't even know this as a kid, but they had an applause meter in the building and everybody would applaud. They'd bring them out one at a time. And the woman who got the loudest applause was coronated queen for a day. And then the, and of course everybody erupt and there are prizes for everybody. And then the, uh, the announcer would, the final trademark mark sign off was, this is Jack Bailey. Wishing we could make every woman a queen for every single day. Applause, credit roll, the end. Do you know what? I'm telling you, these first two chapters in Esther, it is the search for queen for a day, only they're not using an applause meter. Their method is much more risque. All right? Let's go. So the story has been started. Plot thickens because the the king is looking for a new queen. This would be verse 8. And when the king's order... An edict had been proclaimed. Many young women who wanted to be queen for a day and for life were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor, and immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace, and he moved her and her attendance into the best place in the harem. Now, one more line, verse 10. And Esther had not received, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. The single insertion of that light, that that line, hints the bicultural way that young Esther is having to negotiate life as an exile. Look, when young Daniel gets there, absolutely unashamed. I am a Jew. I cannot eat that. Do you understand? Esther gets there. Not a word about being a Jew. You're in a harem. No problem. Bicultural name. Bicultural existence as an exile. And by the way, the author will never make a single peep. No commentary. Just lets it go. Okay, keep going. So what did the young ladies have to do? Verse 12. So before a young woman's turn came to go in, it's an interesting word, go in to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the, the women, six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. By the way, what would you be smelling like after six months of that? I mean, please, it'd be like you live in Macy's all your life. <laughs> Wow. And this is how, verse 13, this is how she would go into the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She went in, she went in a single woman. She came out a concubine. Hmm. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. And so it went with Esther. But when she went into the king, 
She did not come out a concubine. She was not even queen for a night. She was not queen for a day. Turns out she becomes the real deal queen of Persia. And the next words about Esther are here in verse 17. And now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and he made her queen instead of Vashti, the deposed queen. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all the nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Listen to that. Listen to this, folks. A young Jewish woman. Are we clear about that? A young Jewish woman marries, though the word is never intentionally used in the story, marries an uncircumcised pagan Gentile king and becomes the divine instrument for the saving of her people, and as Karen Jobes put it, for the saving of the nation from which the Messiah later comes. Moral ambiguities? Are you kidding? But that's the life of an exile. You're caught in between, and you have to choose. Wow. Now the plot really begins to thicken because now the antagonist is introduced. So who do we have so far? Well, we have King Xerxes. We have Queen Esther. We have Cousin Mordecai, who obviously is a royal court official. And now enters Haman. Haman. Haman the Agagite. Did you ever hear of King Agag, the king of the Amalekites, the, the, the race of people that hated the children of Israel, we got a true live descendant who congenitally, congenitally hates the Jews. Whoa. Chapter 3, verse 1, and after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all that of the other nobles. Verse 2, and all, all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down and pay him honor. Mordecai was a Jew. Everybody knew it. And he was not going to bow down to anybody, not even Haman. Oh, how did Haman take it? Verse 5, now when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having, yet, having, yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Have mercy. And so uh, as an echo out of the story of Daniel, Haman does the same thing. He goes into the king and says, oh, king, live forever. You know what? I found out there's a people, a very dangerous people in this empire. They're going to kill you one day. And by the way, there have been several, at this point in time, several assassination attempts against Xerxes. So he's very sensitive. There's, there's a people, and if you'll just give me permission, I'll exterminate them. We'll kill them all. You'll never have to fear them again. He's so... He's so paranoid that he, with one wave of his hand and the giving of his signet ring, okays genocidal extermination. Kill them all, whoever they are. 
And that's exactly what happens. Drop down to verse 13. In chapter 3, dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And Mordecai finally reads a copy of the edict. And how does he respond? Take a look here in chapter 4, verse 1. And when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. Eventually, the word gets to Queen Esther about this, the consternation and bizarre behavior of her cousin publicly in the city. And she sends a messenger. She says, go find out what's up with this. Mordecai reports the edict. His words right here in verse 12. And when Esther's words were reported back to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. So this is verse 12, chapter 4. He sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. No, 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 no. For if you remain silent, girl, and I'm talking to you, if you remain silent at this this time, O queen, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come into your royal position for such a time as this. Two pinnacle lines that the world remembers from the story of Esther. This is the first one. Only it goes in the old King James. Who knows that you have come into the kingdom for such a time as this? Don't we say that to each other? Who knows? Maybe you're here for that reason. You know what? Maybe so. Maybe you are here for this reason. Some of you are feeling right now that your life has no reason to it, no rhyme, no nothing. And you're saying, why am I living life the way I'm having to live it? Hey, 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 slow down, slow down. Who knows whether or not God has destined you, unbeknown to you, to come into the kingdom at this very time. That's why, ladies and gentlemen, you just can't give up. You can't quit, please. Who knows? This may be why you're queen, girl. Esther shoots a reply back, verse 15, and then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, and I want you to fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my attendants will fast as you do, and when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And here comes that second well-known line, and let's say it out loud together. And if I perish, I perish. If standing up for my faith and my people means I perish, then I perish. I will not go to the grave without having stood up and confessed my belief and my conviction. I cannot keep silent. If I perish, I perish. (sighs) Moral ambiguities. (laughs) Great moral clarities as well when you're in exile. There's nothing to negotiate. If I have to speak all alone and stand all alone, then I will stand all alone and I will speak all alone. And if I perish, let me perish. Wow. The life of an exile. Nobody said it was uncomplicated. Well, you may not have God showing up by name in this story, but guess what? His fingerprints are all over the narrative. He's going to spend three days and three nights. Sometimes, listen, sometimes, elders, are you listening to me? 
You're the ones that set aside first Tuesday of every month as a day of fasting and prayer, Brian. Sometimes it takes fasting and prayer to break through to God. Three days and three nights. First Tuesday, first Wednesday, first Thursday. You got to break through. You can't just sit there. You have to do something. And the first thing you do is go to him. Talk and plead with him. Wow. And now they start showing up. Little coincidences. Speaking of the fingerprints of God, little coincidences. I love the way one person defines coincidences. They are God's way of working a miracle anonymously. Isn't that good? That's what a coincidence is. There are no coincidences in this life. Nothing is happening by chance. God is in control of your life from stem to stern. He's in control of your life right now while it feels out of control and spiraling down. He is Smack dab in the middle of what you're going through right now. It's not coincidental. Everything is moving you to the ending of a story. Hmm. Well, boy, they start happening. <laughs> and by the way, the book of Esther is set up around this literary organizing principle. They are, there are two pairs of banquets at the beginning. There are two pairs of banquets at the end. And in the smack dab middle, there are two banquets. I should say there's a pair of banquets at the beginning, pair at the end, and a pair, two of them, right here in the middle. It was Aristotle who coined the phrase. And that's what the narrator, the writer, is setting us up for this. I'll put the phrase on the, uh, the, the, the word on the screen for you. Peripety. Nobody ever uses that word. Peripety. What does peripety mean? It's the sudden turn of events that reverses the outcome of a story. That's a peripety. And now they start coming. Coincidences? No. Boom, boom. Reversal, 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 reversal. Watch this. You ready? Okay, let's go to those banquets. Come on. The Holy Spirit grants wisdom during those three days and nights of fasting to Esther. And she comes up with a strategy. These two, these, these, these two consecutive banquets. She goes to the, the king and Haman says, listen, I want you to have, I want you to eat with me. Today. And the king said, Haman, let's go. And they show up. And it's just the three of them. And oh my, it's just a wonderful, having a little tea together with the, with the, the royal couple. And Haman, his buttons are about to burst off. Wow, look at who I'm eating with. At the end of the meal, Serviette just wiping off the last crumbs. The king looks at the queen and says, hey, listen, there's a reason for this. What is it you want? Listen, guys, when you get a good meal, What do you want? <laughs> so Esther says, good question. I'll tell you tomorrow. Brilliant, girl. Brilliant. Now, it just so happens between today and tomorrow, there comes a peripety, a sudden reversal of fortune, unexpected and utterly perfectly timed because the king can't sleep that night. He can't sleep. He finally calls the servant, bring me the chronicles of the kings. Let me just hear some stories. I'm just not tired at all. And the servant starts reading the stories. And the king is reminded about somebody who foiled an assassination plot. And he said, hey, yo, servant, stop right there. Uh, has, have we ever done anything to show gratitude to this man who has foiled and spared the plot and spared my life? Not that I know, your highness. Hmm. Just then, it's Haman. King says, Haman, you're here awfully early in the morning. 
Oh, yes, he is. Because you know what has just happened? Yesterday. So this is early morning before the second banquet. Yesterday, when Haman went home from the first banquet, he walked by Mordecai again. And Mordecai would would budge. He is so infuriated by the time he gets home, he says to his wife, I'm telling you what, I'm going to kill that man. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. And, and the wife and the friend say, hey, that's a great idea. Why don't you do that? Why don't you put a big gallow? Because they impale people in the Persian Empire. They just run a stake through them. Put a big gallow, a, a pole for impalement. And tomorrow, go ask the king, can you have the life of Mordecai, this terrible enemy, and we'll have him impaled, and then you're forever free. So he knocks at the door early in the morning. Haman, what are you doing here so early? But before Haman can say a word, he says, hey, listen, Haman, I've just been thinking. What would you do for somebody who has done a great favor to the king? And Haman is absolutely sure that the king is talking about him. So Haman comes up with this long list of, I do this and this and this and this and this. And the king finally, when he's through, he says, well done. That's very good. I listen, listen, would you please do that for our friend Mordecai? <laughs> Peripety. Sudden reversal of fortune. Mortified over Mordecai. And Haman has to lead him through the streets. You know the story. (sighs) Okay, so it's morning. Now it's time for the second banquet. Okay, we're ready to go. Second banquet, chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's second banquet. You got that there? And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked again, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It'll be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it'll be granted. And then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed killed and annihilated. Look, if we had been merely sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress should justify disturbing the king. And the king comes unglued. He jumps up from his couch. Who would dare to destroy you and your people? Esther was waiting for that moment. And she speaks. She answers, verse 6, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman king goes postal, explodes in a fury. He's out in the palatial gardens just trying to cool off. And Haman realizes this is it. If there's no help now, it's curtains. And so he goes over to the couch where she's reclining, Queen Esther, and he throws himself on that couch, begging the queen for his life. Give me my life. And the king walks in just then, and she's on the couch with the queen. And I want to tell you, that was it. Peripety. Sun reversal a fortune. And now you have verse 10. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and then the king's fury subsided. Who says God isn't personally embedded in this narrative that never breathes his name once? 
And now you have Xerxes, and now you have Mordecai, and now you have Esther. And they are frantically, desperately putting countermeasures together to countermand the, the, the edict that has already gone out to all 127 provinces. They scramble. There goes the royal signet. Just in time, talking about peripety, a second countermandering order reaches all 127 provinces of the empire just in time, and the Jewish race is spared extermination. Isn't that something? Peripety. And by the way, the uh, pair of banquets at the end, that's a Jew celebrating. And it's called Purim. Purim. They still celebrate it today. What do they celebrate? They celebrate the mighty, almighty God's mighty at the last minute reversal of fortunes, deliverance from their enemies. And today they still remember the intrepid exile queen named Esther. So here's the question before we hurry out of here. So what's that story have to do with you and me? Oh, listen to this very carefully, because it is no accident that the name of God has been left out of the story. By leaving the name out, the writer has produced a provocative and stunning theological point. You ready for this? And that is... God does not have to personally show up anywhere, not in your life, not in my life, to fulfill the purpose he has always had for you. He doesn't have to show up. It's a great paradox, by the way. He never shows up once to exile Esther. She just presses on in fasting. She just presses on in trusting that he'll be her guide, and she just is acting out what's in her head. She's just following it, but she's been given instructions from the throne room of the universe, and God never shows up. It's the great paradox. God is all-powerfully present even where he is conspicuously absent. Hang on to that. As Karen Jobes notes, the story of Esther explores the intriguing interplay between God's providence and human decisions and actions. In other words, hey, folks, this is it. You just got to keep living. You got to keep going. You got to keep on believing. You got to keep working. You got to keep trying. You got to keep trusting. You have to keep hoping. Don't you ever let go. Do you know why? This is a huge mistake that I'm always making, too. The story is still being written. I'm always trying to analyze my story in the middle of it, saying, God, I can't figure out what's going on. Help me out here. Give me a clue. No, 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 no. You, you, you don't provide analysis and commentary during a game. You provide analysis and commentary when the game is over. True or false? But of course... Our problem is we're trying to analyze the story while we're living it, and it makes absolutely no sense to us, and we are, we are convinced. Some of you are going, something, going through something right now, and it feels just as if the Almighty God were a billion times a billion miles away from you. No sense of his presence, no, no whispering in the ear. no cavalry sent to rescue you. You're going through this, and it looks like it's going to be curtains professionally. Physically, maritally, financially. What you're doing is you're analyzing the story and it is not over yet. Do you understand that? They're still writing your story. And one day when you read God's backstory to your personal story, you're going to say to him, my Lord and my God, that's what you were doing to me. I had no clue. And he didn't want you to have a clue. Because it would have frozen you. You would have leaned back. You wouldn't have trusted. You would have been paralyzed. And he said, I can't have that. Make the guy think he's going through this all alone. Make her think she has been abandoned. 
But keep her going. Keep her going. Don't let her quit. Wow. Yeah. I will never leave you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Truth is, when God is nowhere to be seen, he is in fact behind the scene. Would you put that on the screen, please? That's the take-home line. No study guide today. Would you just lock that in the gray matter of your bright mind? When God is nowhere to be seen, he is in fact behind the scene. He's at work. He's at work. You haven't seen the end of your story. One day, high-fiving, you will learn he's at work. Esther never knew. She just kept living and hoping and trying and trusting and praying and believing. Wow. Just because you're in exile does not mean God is in exile. See, we tend to put God in exile with us. Oh, he's with you, but he's not in exile. <laughs> he has a, he's roaming the whole universe simultaneously. He said, I'm in control. You got to trust him. Come on. What's that line? Romans 8, 28. In fact, let's, let's do this one out loud together. Romans 8, 28. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I'm telling you. When God is nowhere to be seen, he's in fact behind the scene, working it all out. Don't quit, please. Don't quit. Don't quit. Do not quit. He's on your side. and He'll never leave you or forsake you. In fact, I got to tell you this before I sit down. Speaking of peripety, the greatest peripety in the universe, the greatest reversal of ultimate fortune happened at Calvary. It looked like it was down the sink. Over. You lost. We had hoped it was you. Obviously, it is not you. The greatest peripety, the sudden reversal of fortune is wrapped up in the story of Jesus. Death, burial, resurrection, and soon coming. He's coming again. He's going to reverse every fortune when he returns the last time. And he's coming. He's coming soon. You're in exile like I am. Yep, we're in exile. But fellow exiles, don't give up. God has not forsaken you. And the best is yet to come. Amen. Amen. Amen.